because yeah. it, it blew me away. Like my first encounter with this series, that's what it was. It was like, I can't believe I'm looking at these little Lego dudes and like, <laughs> I'm actually like feeling emotional. That's insane. Yeah, yeah that's crazy. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the State of the Arc podcast. My name is Mike. My name is Kason. This is our first episode of our Final Fantasy VI analysis. Man, I am so excited to do this game. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Uh, Final Fantasy VI was not the one I expected to win the last poll. I was expecting mm. nine. Um, oh, and, yeah. and nine didn't even come in second this time. I was really surprised. Was it 12? Final Fantasy XII 12. did as well as it did. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, you know, anyway, I, I'm, I'm very excited to talk about this game though, because mm. of all the final fantasy games, strangely enough, this is, I think my least replayed, like I, th you I've, know, I've replayed play 10 more than this. I've replayed yeah. even the NES games more than this, mm. even though I would consider this one of the very, very top shelf best ones. Me too. Uh, so, in terms of looks, sound, everything in so many different ways, this game is just top level. Uh, the trouble, oh, and it actually offers um, pretty good replay value yes. in the character differentiations between who yep. you consider to be the protagonist or not, um, and the different characters you can have in your party. You yep. can like mix and match and do yep. all sorts of things, Lots but for whatever reason, it's not my go-to replay I know. Final Fantasy. I know, but it's definitely, oh, it's definitely so one of the, I mean, one of the yeah. very best games on the Super Nintendo, to say oh, the I least, so. if not one I of the best so. games in the series. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to be playing this on my Super NES Classic. There you go. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. I probably will too, actually. Um, uh, I'll, I'll bust that out uh, and, and play it on that too. But um, fun. another interesting uh, thing here, it, it, this is the, the oldest game we will have covered on this podcast. And so that weird. seems really strange. <laughs> it does feel strange because <laughs> I feel like in terms of the games that we're interested in yeah. and that we, you know, I feel like this is kind of in the middle. Yeah. Right? It's like in the middle, yeah. maybe early mid. Yeah. But like, it's so funny that six is the earliest. Yeah. Time. I mean, before this, we've basically only covered PlayStation 1. That's as far back as we've really gone. Yeah. So yeah. I'm excited to do a Super Nintendo RPG. Um, and you know it's wild. 29 years ago is when this game I know. Came out. Almost 30. Unbelievable. People who were born the year this game <laughs> came out will turn 30 next year. Freaking unbelievable. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy, and um, uh, it, it's made me more excited to cover more Super Nintendo RPGs because there's a lot of really yeah. good ones. Yeah. Um, but anyways, uh, as always, uh, let's do a little bit of an introduction to what this podcast is about for those of you who have not seen it before. This may be your first time. So this is primarily a storytelling analysis podcast, and yeah. um, even more specifically, uh, thematic uh, analysis. We're, we're going for theme and core and like message within the game more yeah. so than lore or plot summary or that kind of thing. Right. So um, this is about finding the art in the thing, not about yeah. like regurgitating, uh, you know, what happens, you know, the events and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so it, it's more like a literary analysis, I guess. Uh, and so be good. because we do that. We, we form this a little bit like a book club. So mm -hmm. we, uh, will break it into parts and each group or each week we meet back up and we discuss what we played, you know, the, for, for the last week. So, um, for the first episodes, we generally will do development history. We're trying to get at, uh, what was in the developers' minds when they made the game, what their intentions were with it, when we can do that, reading about what they wanted to accomplish and trying to understand where they were coming from creatively. Uh, 
And so we're going to do that as our first episode. And then for next week, uh, you'll want to play up to the point where um, Terra is taken by Locke and, uh, and group to the Returner's hideout. Um, and there she's kind of given a choice. They're, they're, they would like to recruit her to fight with the Returners against the Gastalian Empire, but she's torn about what she should do because she doesn't really know who she is. Um, she had a slave crown that sort of wiped her memory. So she's trying to decide what's important to her, and she's having a hard time there. And there's a safe point there at the hideout. That's where we're going to be stopping for next week, and that's as far as we'll get in, in that episode. So play up nice, to that point. Nice. Um, Anything else that I missed? Oh, we will refrain from talking about um, like late game spoilers early on for those who have not played this before. And believe it or not, as old as the games are that we cover, there are always a lot of people who are playing it for the first time alongside us. Yeah. So we're going to avoid talking about things that happen late game until they happen. And, and once it's been revealed, then we'll discuss it in context of setups and payoffs and and things of that nature. So we just also ask to refrain from doing that in the comments too much, though we advise anybody who has not played the game before to not read the comments in case you will find spoilers there. We can't control that. We don't, you know, censor or monitor our, our comments in that way. So um, I think that's about it. Anything I missed? No, no, that's it. Okay. Um, just strap, strap, buckle up. Buckle up. Strap in. So this is, uh, is going to um, be a fun one. A lot of people who follow this channel uh, are probably started following because I was doing a retrospective on the Final Fantasy series for many years there. I've gotten away from that for a bit, but it's coming back very, very soon. Um, the first episode is going to be released here in just a matter of weeks. And um, so I say that because this remake <laughs> of my Final Fantasy retrospective series has been much deeper in terms of uh, research on development history. Um, and so there's a lot of things I learned through basically years and years and years of, of reading developer interviews and playing these games over and over and over again um, that is going to appear in this new series that was not in the original. Um, just to give you a taste of how much it will be expanded, the original Final Fantasy I retrospective was just under 10 minutes, nine minutes something. And this version that will be coming out is over 36 minutes long. So there's quite a bit more in terms of actually uh, getting a handle on the history of how these games were made. And so coming into this on Final Fantasy VI, I mean, for those of you who've seen, say, our Final Fantasy VIII podcast series or yeah. um, our Final Fantasy X podcast series, um, you know, you'll see some of the research in those, but it, it's kind of hard when you're not starting from the beginning to give like context leading up to what changed here. I'm going to try to provide a little bit of that, but um, look forward to those retrospectives to get like the full story. But the one thing I wanted to leave off with here is that we're now towards the end of the Super Nintendo's life cycle here. Yeah, so four and five have yeah. come before it. Right. And so it seems like Square, uh, at least at this point, and this was this was true of the PlayStation 1, and it was definitely true of the NES 2, it was like they, they kind of broke it into threes. It was like they had yeah. three games per console generation for a long time there. Yeah. 
And PS2 by, did as well. Yeah, they they and did because because Eleven was yeah technically a, a, technically a PS2 game as well. Yeah. But um, yeah, they they broke them into threes at this time. And by the time they got to the end of that development cycle, they clearly had like a really really solid idea of how to work with that hardware yeah. and how to design the type of game they were making within the constraints that they had with that. Yes. Yeah, and they they really show their mastery. Uh, of everything they learned through that console cycle gener uh, that console cycle by the time they get to the third so Final Fantasy 3 now when I say 3 I mean really 3 not 6 that was retitled 3 <laughs> Final Fantasy 3 on yeah. the Famicom was a great example of that where the game was just massive massive yeah. in comparison so to 1 and 2 yeah, yeah. and uh, Final Fantasy 6 is similar um, like in terms of uh, its 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 graphical style, like oh, it looks beautiful. It's unbelievable. So, so good. Possi possibly the pinnacle of pixel art. Yeah, I mean this game. I mean, and and Square had several other games. I mean, Seiken Densetsu Three and a lot of others around this time. This yeah, 95, yeah. 94, 1994, 1995 time where it, they clearly they were like mastering uh, uh, pixel art was sort of blossoming into this mature art form at this point yeah and yeah. and it was just they were they were really really good with it but on top of that i mean like systems um in terms of the the number of characters i i, I this is still uh the largest cast of playable characters in the series uh to this day do you which think is crazy do you think in any future final fantasy games that they will have a cast this large I mean, possibly. I'd say they're kind of moving away from that. Yeah, I mean, particularly since it's becoming more a more action-focused series. Um, oh, that's true. Uh, yeah, that that's that true. certainly makes it harder to. Yeah. But um, but no, it's. Uh, I I don't think I can overstate <laughs> necessarily just how like how masterful this game was in terms of mm -hmm. like learning everything that they had learned, taking all the lessons yeah. from basically every game they had made and then like just creating something completely brilliant, something that is mm -hmm. and, and should be revered as an all-time classic video game, not just RPG, yeah. not just Super Nintendo game, but like among all the greatest games. Yeah, yeah. games ever made. I'd agree with that. Also, one year development time. Yes. Like that blows my mind, <laughs> especially for today when it's like yes. 12 years to make one game now. Um Okay, maybe more like seven or eight. I don't know for the big AAA games, something yeah. of this level. Yeah, uh, one year. Yeah, and you know, no delays. They just they did it. They made it. It came out, and I really miss. I miss that in mm. video games. I miss not having these really high quality games uh, come out every year instead of having to wait. Oh, in five six years, you're going to get the next yeah. one. And what's funny about that is like, I mean, obviously, you know, we recognize that it's much harder to make a triple A game today yes. than it was at that time. So yes, clearly that's the reason, but it doesn't have to be your game doesn't have <laughs> to be 4k, you know, I don't know. You, you can, you people should still make pixel art games, you know, I know people do, but triple A pixel art, that's what I really miss. Um, so obviously we're, we're aware of that, but, um, yeah. even at the time, like the legend of Zelda would have these huge gaps in between you're games, right between right? a link to the past and ocarina of time is like it was about five years five years yeah, yeah that's true so that's a good point yeah fair enough anyway they were cranking these ff yeah out, these cranking FF them out really fast and yeah. part of the reason they were able to do this was because they sort of uh split their development team during the super nintendo era 
So oh, they had a really small kind of like core team of guys that did the NES titles. Mm. Um, of course, Hironobu Sakaguchi, uh, Koichi Ishii, um, you had Nazir Gabelli, who a lot of people don't know about. He's mm. like an Iranian American, oh, cool. uh, Apple II programmer who made uh, great nice. games on the Apple II. And he went to Japan for a while and worked on these Final Fantasy games. There's a oh, whole sick. funny nice. story about that where uh, Sakaguchi was his like minder, the president of Square put him in charge of Nazir Gabelli. And Gabelli would only, he only wanted to have steak dinners. He's like, I, you have to take me to steak dinners every night if I'm going to work on this oh RPG gosh. with you guys. And so, so you had to take him to a steak dinner every day, right? Uh, wow. But he was like the main programmer. That's um, great. So, and then of course, Nobuo Ematsu, uh, uh, Hiromichi Tanaka worked mm, a lot on say Final Fantasy three. Mm. So you had kind of this really core group of people um, and then uh, ex expanded as they moved into the superintendent. Of course, they needed more people. This is where um, Tetsuya Nomura started on like Final Fantasy four and five. Yeah, four and five. Um, and here uh, uh, Tetsuya uh, Takahashi as well. I think. Yeah, Tetsuya Takahashi, yeah. and then also um, Kitase. Um, oh, Yoshinori. Yoshinori Kitase Yoshinori started Kitase. on Final Fantasy five. So yeah. the team started to grow, yeah. and they began to split it into what they called the battle team and then mm. the adventure team, or mm. the team that developed the story. And yeah. so um, uh, Hiroyuki Ito, who was sort of the one who came up with the active time battle system in Final Fantasy IV, mm -hmm. um, he sort of led the battle team uh, at this point. He was sort yeah. of in charge of all the mechanics and, and that yeah. sort of thing. And then uh, you had Hironobu Sakaguchi and, um, and Yoshinori Kitase, over here sort of leading the adventure team. Yeah, the scenario and the events, like specifically. Right, right. And so that's the way they were kind of doing it, but it was at this point where Hironobu Sakaguchi became an executive vice president of Squaresoft. He was like Oh yeah, right way before this. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, around like 1994. Yeah, yeah. And so this was the first time where he, his time was divided up so much into so many projects yeah. and in particular with Chrono Trigger really heavily before oh, that's this right, that's right. Um, that uh, he didn't have time to really direct the games in the way that he had for the first yeah. five. Well and I'd heard because I think that okay so Final Fantasy 5 didn't sell as well as Final Fantasy 4 had uh, some of yeah. that could be that it was, wasn't brought to the west um, but I think internally they were thinking like hey let's go in a different direction here uh, you are pretty dang busy now. <laughs> uh, how about how about uh, you know we get somebody else to direct these? Um, I feel like uh, Final Fantasy V not quite being as successful as four uh, may have played into Sakaguchi's decision to kind of take a more of a backseat. Well, that, that that's definitely that's definitely a big part of it. Um, there is one quote that I want to read here too, um, because and this is something I've seen that's been there's some confusion. Uh, I think among uh, Final Fantasy fans about like just how involved Hironobu Sakaguchi was in mm -hmm. FF games, like uh, past the time in which he was billed as director. Okay. Um, so uh, let's see here. Let me pull this quote up. Do, 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 do. Okay. So this is a quote from Kitase. He says, my role was similar to what it had been with Final Fantasy V, which was 
mainly an event scripter scenario writer mm. kind of thing. Except that the volume of the game grew once again exponentially. So the team of people working on the event scenes and scenario side grew to about four or five. And of course, Sakaguchi was the producer and had primary control overseeing those aspects of the game as well. Okay. But he'd also become very busy at that time after becoming vice president of the company and had a lot of other projects going on. He placed me in charge of the event production, carefully assessing those parts I directed. If we consider that Final Fantasy games are divided into two core elements, battles and drama, then I oversaw the design of the latter, while Hir Hiroyuki Ito supervised the battle aspects. Mm -hmm. It was then up to Sakaguchi to bring the project together as a whole intelligible piece. So he, you're, you're saying he did more yes. than, than it... Then it, would, then it would seem yeah. not being billed as director and okay. being more of producer or executive producer. I got you. Um, he was still very involved creatively yeah. with the FF series, like we said, for FF8 until FF8. FF8 was mm. the first one in which he was like, was I am taking all. a total backseat on this, okay. and I am allowing okay. you to do what you want with it. Interesting. Okay. Good. So he, he was definitely still very involved, not only in this, but in FF7's development too. Mm. So, um, not to take anything away uh, from him just because you know he was busy with other things. This was still very much, Final Fantasy was still very much his baby, I guess. Um, another interesting thing, and this is something a lot of people notice and talk about with Final Fantasy games, um, the early ones. It seemed as if there was this sort of pattern where the odd-numbered, Final Fantasies were sort of mechanics and gameplay focused mm. and the even numbered ones were more story focused and this was very true I mean like Final mm. Fantasies 1 and 3 were all about you know choosing job classes and 3 yeah, had yeah. job changing you know like cl right. class changing um, Final Fantasy 2 was a lot more focused on, on character and story mm. um, you know, four, Final Fantasy know, four, yeah, 4 went was. away, totally away from jobs from, from and three. class changing yeah. and was all about locking characters into their roles and yeah. building a character around that. Um, Final Fantasy V went back the other way to job classes and, and uh, you know, customizing again and had a little bit less of, an, of a focus on like intimate, like character driven narrative. And then Final Fantasy VI went right back. So it just seemed to be sliding back and forth. Hmm. Um, there's an interesting quote here uh, from Sakaguchi on this. He said, people say that the odd-numbered FF games are system-based and the even-numbered ones are story-based, but it's not determined in that way. It's simply a matter of the creators getting tired and not wanting to do things the same way as the last time. So they're just changing the uh, way it's presented. Oh, there was a... I was reading this in... Um, oh, what was it? Shmupulations did a translation yep. of, a, of an interview. And uh, there was this this thinking um, amongst the developers of Final Fantasy VI that they didn't want. They always wanted to be changing things. They always at Final Fantasy. That's one of the unique kind of features of Final Fantasy is that each game is different from the one before it. Uh, but one of the lines from a developer specifically said that they didn't want to rest on the laurels of the people who had made the previous game. Right. Right. They so. Uh, one of the questions was on the reuse of assets. And they said, no, even though some assets may look similar to Final Fantasy V, we created them all from, from scratch. scratch. Yep. They recreated every single thing. Mm -hmm. And so they're saying, like, we, we're doing the work ourselves. It's a very, 
I don't know. I feel like it's a very culturally influenced kind of thing to be yeah. like, you know, to, to make it your own each, each and every time. Yeah. But the idea of not wanting to rest on the laurels of the previous game would lead a development team to have a pretty different product from the previous game yeah. each time. And, and it would result in that odd, even odd, even back yeah. and forth yeah. kind of ping pong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. It's just a natural thing. And this is something I'm, I'm going to bring up in the, in the retrospective series too, but this goes all the way back to the very first one which is, uh, there's a quote where Sakaguchi says something like, um, the spirit of the thing back then was that we were making this, this product, this creation, or we weren't working on a, a product no, for yeah. a company. We were, we were creating something that was like deeply personal and meaningful to us. And we were putting everything in it, not saving anything for a sequel. Yeah, All of the ideas right. are going into it, right? And, and he has said many times over his career how much he hates direct sequels. Yeah. Like uh, a story that then has a sequel afterwards. I think you can relate I, to I this so much. Yeah. When, whenever it's planned, like <laughs> whenever they're like, oh, we'll see how successful it is and then we'll turn Lost into seven seasons when it should have only been yeah. two. Like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> this happens quite often and, and you can tell that they're just milking it for the money until finally people stop paying attention and then they're like, okay, let's come up with an ending. I yeah. always love it to see it when even if it's multiple seasons, if it was all pre-conceptualized to begin with. Yeah. Something like Avatar The Last Airbender is a good example. Sure. All three of uh, the seasons of that show were all planned from the, beginning, from the beginning, and it, it's a cohesive flow from beginning to end. Um, so I, I love the idea of just putting everything into one, because sometimes you'll get these cool ideas. Like I'm writing a book right now. Um, I know you are too. Yep. Multiple books, right? <laughs> yep. I keep thinking, I don't know if that's good for them. Maybe I'll save that for my next book. And it's yeah. like, what am I doing? Why am I? <laughs> I don't even know if I can write one book. And yeah. I'm talking about writing five and putting ideas in these yep. future books, you know? And with this one, you get it all on the plate right up front. And for some reason, because the idea is, oh no, if I put all my good ideas in one book, then I'll never be able to write another one. Right. But then here's Sakaguchi yep. on Final Fantasy VI with the same philosophy of putting all your good ideas into the same game, and he can do it six times. Like yep. the math doesn't add up. Yeah. But somehow he made it work. Yeah. Right. So it's not a zero sum game right. that we're dealing with. Right. And and that was kind of their entire mindset and vision was that we're treating this as if it's the last game we'll ever make. That yeah. what Final Fantasy meant to them. Final Fantasy, right? Or is, last is, story, you could say. <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like uh, you know, it, it, obviously it was a mega success at this time. Yeah. They they still had a huge rivalry with Dragon Quest, which was what I was going to circle around to in a second, uh, but. I see. Um, so they hadn't quite beat out or slayed the monster they wanted to until yeah, FS7. Yeah. But um, they knew they were going to make more Final Fantasies, but the, the idea was to treat it, to treat this game we're making as if it's the last game we'll ever make, as mm -hmm. if we'll never make another one. And we're going to put everything into this uh, as if there will never be a sequel. And uh, that he, he has, uh, like I, I said, been outspoken about it. not wanting to make direct sequels to things. It's, it's not what he's about hmm. uh, for some of the reasons that you mentioned. So um, that was uh, kind of the, the mentality behind how they made these games at the time. Yeah, very good. Um, uh, really interesting quote here, too. I think this one came from Kitase. Because um, he has actually a couple of really great quotes uh, in, in terms of because because Sakaguchi became producer, um, they had two co-directors on this one. Uh, no, right. Kitase, who led the adventure team, and then Ito, Ito. who led the uh, the battle team. Um, and then Ito, of course, would go on to direct like Final Fantasy IX, 
uh, and Final Fantasy XII. Mm. After this, uh, Kitase has gone on to do seven and eight and ten, and right. uh, was a producer on thirteen and producer on fifteen and producer on FF Seven Remake. Um, so he 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 says a couple things here that that really stood out to me and really do a good job of illustrating what makes Final Fantasy VI and the series afterward in terms of where it went story-wise. I feel like really six important. is the hinge. Yeah. Right? Like six is where it stops being medieval. It kind of goes to the steampunk kind of thing. Yeah, like right. a lot of changes that for the future, you could predict for what the future of Final Fantasy would become, started with six. Yep. Six is where all of a sudden there's this kind of hinge point yep. where it kind of moves in this slightly different direction. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And, and I think that well, I'll just read the quotes, but there's a couple mm. things he says here that really nailed down to me what made Final Fantasy VI special, but then yeah. kind of the series afterward, like when it reached its pinnacle, when yeah. when it reached its highest highs, I guess, with, of course, games like Final Fantasy VII uh, and, and X and, and others that were just these mega million sellers, right? Yeah. And why people were so uh, drawn into them. What made the Final Fantasy series so innovative was the emotion realized from drama. This game really brought the cr that creative goal into full bloom. The idea was to transform the Final Fantasy characters of the time from mere ciphers for fighting into true characters with substance and backstories who could evoke more interesting or complex feelings in the player. Mm. Um, to go along with this idea, there's a great quote from Ted Woolsey, who was the uh, translator on this game. And it will take me a second to pull it up because I have a thousand quotes on <laughs> millions of pages here. But, uh, oh, while I'm looking for this, this is another um, Woolsey quote that kind of confirms Sakaguchi's almost hawkish uh, creative control oh, over hard to work with. <laughs> of Final <laughs> Fantasy. There's uh, some others I'm going to read too, but Sakaguchi-san was always pretty engaged in these things. So he'd get to, uh, his point across where he wanted things to come out and he'd expect a lot. Mm. At any rate, he certainly deserved a lot. That guy was very smart and had some great people working for him. I always tried mm. to do my best. Um, he, he was a tough boss to work for, and we're going to get into that more in a minute, but I didn't, I didn't want to forget that one while I was kind of scrolling through here. Because Woolsey wasn't like a, a big game player necessarily. He was just a, he was a you know, guy who was into translation yeah. and the culture of Japan and things like that. But So he would play these games, right? And uh, he talks about how, and I don't know how I'm, why or how I'm not going to be able to find it now. <laughs> I might just have to summarize what he said, but I would really yeah. love to read it. Um, because he would play the game, because for translators back then, it was just a complete mess. Like, they would send you files that were out of order and, like, yeah. all over the place. And you don't even know, like, at which point this dialogue is supposed to go happens. that I'm translating yeah. in, 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 in the conversation. <laughs> it's not like he's playing the game and translating it, translating it while playing. He's given the raw files. Yes. He's just expected yes. to translate yes. them. Yes, exactly in, right. And he's not allowed to use more characters than the space provided for yes. the, the character space provided. And in Jap <coughs> in Japanese, you can say a lot more in fewer characters than in English. That's right. So that leads to some very strange translation uh, yes. choices. And, and this game is, I think, a very good example of that. Yeah, I, I, I don't remember which, or I bad, think it was Suikoden 2. I did a retrospective on Suikoden 2, and that's basically what those translators were saying, was this, the, what they gave to us to work with yeah. was absolutely like unacceptably mm -hmm. messy. 
and like trying to use context clues in just a few <laughs> lines of dialogue to find out, okay, who are they talking to? Yeah, who's and talking where to does this even happen yeah. in the game? Like, when is this happening? Uh, was just a nightmare. So it, uh, translators had a, a really hard time. And not only a really hard time in, in that aspect, but like they had 30 days to do the whole game. Yeah, Ted Woolsey <laughs> was given 30 days to translate FF6. Yeah. 30 days and, and limited space and... Yeah, that's yeah. difficult. And he, he, he gave them his first translation, which was twice as many characters as he was allowed to use. So he had to he try had to it again. It half. And he that's still crazy. came out over the top. And then he, then he threw his original translation out and started over a third time in order to get it to fit. Because yeah. like you're saying, in English characters, yeah, yeah. you have to have a lot more to say what you can say with fewer characters in Japanese. Yep. But he has to fit that same character restraint. So it was crazy. Anyway, I can't find the quote right now. It's in here somewhere. But essentially what he, he's saying is that he thought it was amazing how he would tend to forget as he's playing the game that he's just looking at little dots on a screen. Like the, he, he started to see these yeah. characters as people and he's not even That's a cool. gamer. That's cool. You know, like he just yeah. said like the, even to him, like the, the, the drama, the power yeah. uh, and, the, and the relatability of those characters was really like touching his heart when he was playing it. Um, and, and of course he's just playing it for a job. He's just playing it because right. he's got to translate this game. He's got to, you know, know the story, but like, it's not like he, he went into that, like being a, you know, like today, a lot of people go into those careers. They grew up playing games. Oh, sure. They were familiar Absolutely. with it. They had a, a passion for it already. Yeah, yeah. And that, that wasn't necessarily the case for him. So, right. um, last quote I'm going to read on this point from Kitase. What made the Final Fantasy series so? In a, oh, I guess this is the same, uh, the same quote. Uh, but I'm, I'll just read this part a second. The idea was to transform the Final Fantasy characters from mere ciphers for fighting into true characters with substance and backstories who could evoke more interesting or complex feelings in the player. That is what hmm. it's all about. That makes That's what difference. made it special. Yeah. Like that is why. This series has been as long lasting as it is, why there are so many millions of people around the world yeah. who will never forget like their experiences playing these games and why they play them over and over again. Why I've played Final Fantasy VII, I don't know how many times, <laughs> yeah. 30 times or something like that in my life, right? Because yeah. it, it blew me away. Like my first encounter with this series, that's what it was. It was like, I can't believe I'm looking at these little Lego dudes and like <laughs> I'm actually like feeling emotional. That's insane. Yeah, yeah that's crazy. Right? Yeah. So they really started to figure that out mm. here. And th I think that that's, this is where it really started to shine um, as a, a series that focused on storytelling and characters in that way. Of course, Final mm. Fantasy IV in a lot of ways was kind of the first RPG to sort of pioneer an experiment with these sort of things, but it, it didn't yeah. go as far, nearly as far as FS6 did. And that's because it was mm. the first game on a new platform. They're still, you know, figuring it out. They're yeah. still, you know, they were still developing as creators on, on how, you know, how they wanted to go about making the series. So um, if that's not enough at this point, I guess, to convince you that you should give this game a shot if you haven't, I don't, I don't know what else will. <laughs> um, it's, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal game. Yeah, it really is. Um, anything you want to say along those lines before we continue or something that hinges off of that? Uh, no, at the moment, I think we can just keep going on with the development. Um, okay. I've got a lot of notes, but. 
Okay, so um, uh, another quote here from Kitase. Um, one th interesting thing about this game um, is that they had quite a few scenario writers for this. Yeah, so, that's right. Yeah. So, you know, Sakaguchi and Kitase had kind of been the ones uh, writing for Final Fantasy V. On mm -hmm. FF4, it was uh, Takashi Tokita and Sakaguchi, who were kind of in that adventure team, you know, writing all the events and, and things like that. But here, um, they actually ended up splitting, uh, like, scenario writing between, like, several people, like five or six different people. Yeah, and a lot, each um, person was responsible for a couple characters, right. specifically character scenarios. Right, yeah. that's right. So... Um, Sakaguchi uh, here says, I wanted to approach the story with an ensemble cast. This was his idea, like going into it. He, he wanted a big ensemble cast for this one, partly to do uh, something completely different for the audience. I first saw this kind of storytelling in Star of the Giants, a sports themed comic book in which every member of the team becomes a lead character. Hmm. I wanted to do something similar with a fantasy story with lots of different characters that allowed people to root uh, for different leads. This is something similar to what the director of Suikoden 2 said, uh, oh, yeah. well, Suikoden 1 and 2, and why they have a hundred over 100 characters in the Suikoden games that you can recruit. Yeah, right? those games are great. <laughs> and when you're playing too, you, is it yeah. nine, how many, nine or 12? How many people can you have in battle at once? Uh, I can't in, in which, oh, in Suikoden. In Suikoden? Oh, you can have, it's, it's six, six. It's, oh, it's six? six? I thought it was more. Characters, okay. yeah. But yeah, when you have that many, uh, yeah, you can have a lot of characters. Yeah. So this is kind of becoming a thing in, in anime too, or in manga, uh, where yeah. a lot of manga were having these large ensemble casts where a lot of different characters um, could be considered the protagonist. And so they were kind of taking some inspiration from that. Yeah, that's funny. Um, but so uh, basically Tara and Locke were the two characters conceived by Sakaguchi, Sakaguchi and he sort of wrote their scenarios, right? And most people would say that those are more kind of the lead the characters. Main, yeah, characters of the game. It's it's funny because and I guess if people on who are watching this live uh, are are patrons uh, tell me that this is a spoiler then so be it will cut it out but I don't think it is. Um, Tara really seems like she's going to be like the lead character of the game for sure. the beginning. But yeah. then Celeste really kind of creeps up and sort yes. of takes that spotlight a bit yes. um, later in the game. Yeah. And so it, it's kind of interesting the way that they weave back and forth. And really it does end up becoming like five or six characters you could consider like yeah, main yeah. characters. So not each one of them is as quite as fleshed out as all of the others. Yeah. Um, but there's at least, yeah, there's at least a decent handful that could yeah. be seen that way. Yeah, for sure. Um, so then Celeste and Gaw were created by Kitase. Those mm. were the two. And that's, that's why Celeste kind of creeps up and yeah, overtakes Tara. Because Kitase really <laughs> liked Celeste. <laughs> nice, nice. Um, and I'll read a quote about that in a bit. Yeah. Um, and then we have Shadow and Setzer uh, by Tetsuya Nomura. And yeah. they, these were actually pitched originally as classes for Final Fantasy V. Like oh, a gambler class oh, that's right. and a ninja class. And he reused them more or less for yeah. this new game now. That's right. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So his, his quote about that is, um, this is from Tetsu Nomura. In the planning book for what kind of jobs I had in mind for Final Fantasy V, there were things like a ninja with a dog, uh, a gambler mm. who fought with dice and cards, and <laughs> other illustrations. In the end, those ideas weren't used for Final Fantasy V, but when we started on Final Fantasy VI, they were used uh, as Shadow and Setzer. They became those two characters. And that's cool. Um, another really interesting thing, uh, Kaore Tanaka, who was the 
uh, Xenogears. Yes. Soraya Saga. Soraya Saga, right? Yes. Uh, Tetsuya Takahashi's wife. Yep. She actually did the scenarios for Edgar and Sabin, the two brothers. Mm. Yes. So, um, you know, this is kind of maybe the first uh, piece of her writing that maybe a lot of people got introduced to. Yeah, I didn't back realize that she had worked on this game. Yeah. Especially with these specific characters. Yep. Mm. Uh, so, of course, she would go on to write one of the the best video game stories of all time in yeah. Xenogears with her yep. with her husband. Uh, we've already done a podcast on that, by the way, if you haven't seen it. Uh, check it out. So, um, so yeah, there were a lot Are of you, different people. Did you have a quote from her to read? Not from her. Okay. There's something very interesting. There's actually a little Xenogears connection. Oh, nice. Here. So she created these characters, Edgar and Sabin. Or Sabin? Sabin? Sabin. I Sabin. call him Sabin, but yes. who knows? Was, yeah. <laughs> um, but she had picked out different names for them. She called oh. them Roni and Renee. Oh, Renee. Roni and, and Renee. And Renee, who went on to be characters in Xenogears. Yeah, I was going to say. That's do crazy. You recognize those names. So she, <laughs> just as uh, Nomura carried some FF5 characters into FF6, uh, she seemed to carry um, similar types of characters, but the names from FF6 that mm. get, didn't get used into Xenogears. Yeah. Yeah. Very wow. cool. Very That's cool. awesome. Yep. Uh, that, you know, like we said, um, the idea is to try to use all of your best ideas into this one, but of yes. course there are going to be some ideas cut yes. and I guess you save them for the next save one. Save them for the next <laughs> In <game>. this case <laughs> with Nomura and, and, uh, Tanaka, right? Yeah. Um, let me see here. So I've got, I want to see if this is. Oh, a, and then Tetsuya Takahashi, did you read, didn't he, um, have some input? As well, well you're going to talk about the mechs, the redesign of the mechs oh, okay. that he did or, or, or did what I think is one? great about Takahashi is that he was a map designer. That was his job. He's the map designer. Yeah, like a, for a long time until this game, I think, right? <clears throat> I just think it's great because he's still a map designer. That's like still like his <laughs> oh, philosophy. Oh, yes, yes, you're right. About like is, maps are the most yeah. important part of an And I, at first I'm like, oh, that's a unique philosophy. Then if, to come to find out he was just the map designer <laughs> <laughs> in these other really good games. And he probably thinks that, you know, yeah, his, his role was the... That's, real that's where he started on the FF team was, was doing um, field maps. Doing field maps. And uh, backgrounds and things like that. Um, and uh, Sakaguchi, again, there's a great, um, we, we pulled a lot of quotes from this for Xenogears and, and other things too, but yeah. um, there's a great interview on an Iwata Asks, oh, back yeah. when Iwata was the president of Nintendo and he would do these little interviews with game developers. Yeah, I loved those. Uh, he sat down with Tetsuya Takahashi and... Hironobu Sakaguchi when the last story and Xenoblade Chronicles were coming out back mm, in that's right. 2010, 2009, something yeah. like that, back in those days. Yeah. Um, and they ended up talking a lot about Final Fantasy and Xenogears, and so there's great quotes from that. But uh, Sakaguchi was always just like so, so thrilled with the work that Tetsuya Takashi would do. He's just very, very yeah. good at, at details. And he was a big mech guy. He, yeah. he loved mechs. Yeah. <laughs> he loved yeah. his mecha anime and he was <laughs> obsessed with mechs, which is, you know, where Xenogears came from. But yeah. um, uh, it, it's funny because uh, they have Amano, uh, of course, who's Yoshitaka doing Amano. Yoshitaka Amano, who's yeah. doing the like concept art. Yeah. It's really f He's famous odd. too. He, he had done a lot of stuff oh, yeah. other than Final Fantasy. Have you heard the story about how he got started in anime? I don't think so, no. It's freaking crazy. I go over this in my re my retrospective oh, of yeah. FF1, but um, he went to Tokyo to visit a friend, but instead of going to his friend's house, he went to 
the animation studio that made Speed Racer. Oh, nice. And he just walked in there and showed his portfolio. And he ended up talking with the president of the company. <laughs> he was 14 years old. He was hired on the spot. What in the world? Holy cow. <laughs> That's crazy. So that was in the 60s? Yeah. He was 14 years old. He just wow. he just goes and rides the train into Tokyo or whatever, walks into the animation studio, shows them his portfolio. A 14-year-old gets hired to work on Speed Racer. I don't know that you can do stuff like that anymore. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> That's crazy. But, uh, so, yeah. He, he did the art for Cass Hearn. Yeah. Did you ever watch the, the, the I, live I action Cass seen Hearn? it, no. Dude, it's crazy, but it's really cool. Yeah. Cass Hearn is super cool. He also did uh, a lot of manga, like Guin Saga and, mm. and tons, tons. I mean, he was super famous yeah, by the time Final famous, Fantasy was coming famous. out. Anyways, they got him since the first one, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So he was, was contracted. Their, yeah. He wasn't like an employee of Square, right, yeah. but he was like contracted to do the the concept art. But what's funny about calling it concept art mm -hmm. is that the interpretation of that art in the game is, is loose, to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> like, this yeah, is not it's true. what the characters or the things in the game look like. Right. Like, this, this is his art for the game or whatever. Yeah. But that's not what the fetching characters looked like. No, not um, really. And so it, it was almost like, it wasn't like he developed concept art first, and then they took that concept art and they based that to make the characters. It was almost afterwards, like in marketing? They would do it at the same time. Oh, so he, he would time. be okay. making his art at the same time that Shibuya and Koichi Ishii pixel are art. designing things, yeah. and they're barely related at all. Yeah, that's kind of <laughs> That's funny. just kind of what they did, but it was just like, I love this art, and it's cool, and that'll be like our cover, yes, and it'll be like all the, our logos, yeah. and then the characters look nothing like that, <laughs> because Koichi Ishii had this very specific idea of what he wanted the pixel art characters to look uh -huh. like, and Shibuya, uh, there's some quotes, great quotes here too, about why she changed the color of the hair to green from blonde, right. because... Terrace Harris blonde in all of uh, the key art from Amano. From Amano, yeah. And she changed it to green because she's like, if I didn't do that, every character, if we went off of Amano's characters, every character would be blonde. Every character is blonde. <laughs> <laughs> every character in the game is blonde. <laughs> Sabin and, and Edgar are blonde. Ga is blonde. Like, every character is fetching uh -huh. blonde. So I, I was like, I got to differentiate Tara from them. So she's going to have green hair. And so green. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, another thing, um, I was actually a little disappointed to learn this. It throws my, uh, some of my analysis for the game out the window. Tara's original name in the Japanese was Tina, Tina. Yeah. not Tara. Right. And I'm thinking, oh, Tara and Celeste, right? You've got this heaven, oh, heaven and earth kind yep. of like I see dichotomy thing. Yep. Uh, but it turns out that That's Tara was not her original <laughs> name. And also the green hair. I'm like, yeah, green, like earth, like Tara, Tara, right. you know, it's the green. Uh, it turns out her name was Tina and I don't know what that means. <laughs> and so sure. I, I wonder, anyways, I'll still bring up the Tara connection, but it's a lot, it's a lot weaker now than, than I thought because when I first Because her name's began. Tina, not yeah. Tara. Yeah. Um, anyway, got on a bit of a tangent there. There's a great <laughs> quote here from Kitase about like writing the scenario. I ended up so involved with each personality while scripting the scenarios that there were points where looking back at the game today, it's clear that I somewhat lost this balance, this balance of making every character kind of a main character. Oh, He's sure, like, sure. I, I sort of leaned into one more than the other. Kind of, yeah, I mean, that, but you can't avoid it. It's that. hard. In to, some ways, it's you hard. Can't yeah, that. right. He says, for example, as the scenes featuring Celeste and Kefka progress, these characters became far greater and more influential than originally intended when development began. 
Hmm. My this favorite is Katase, right? Yeah, it is Katase okay. saying this. My favorite was Celeste, which was yes. one of the characters he created. When she was first created, Sakaguchi didn't intend for her to have many spots to shine within the game. Hmm. But because I liked the character so much as we worked on the script, she had more and more parts that really stood out. Some of these scenes didn't really exist in the original script, okay. but since I wanted to showcase this character, there were more and more more there was more and more of a bigger role for her. This is fascinating. I know. They created the characters. <laughs> I know. And then, then they wrote the story. They I mean they may have had a general yeah. scenario, but like then the story kind of it all, I mean, th what, what a way to do that. One yeah. of the difficulties that I have with stories is characters specifically. I feel like I want to tell the story first. I want to build the world. Right. I want to get the plot down right. and the characters. Then I'm like, ah, oh, dang, who are these people? You know? Yeah, right. And I get myself into trouble there, but yep. I, I feel like you have the opposite problem yep. when you create these characters and then it's like, okay, but what now what do they do? Yep. Like, what, what are they going to do now? Oh, this character would. And I feel like there's, in some ways, this is a genius way to tell a story. Because you create the characters and then as the story progresses, you ask yourself, well, what would the character do? Yeah. And then you get a more natural story that way, as opposed yeah. to trying to fit characters into an already made story, you create the characters and then you can more naturally kind of weave the story mm -hmm. um, using the things that they would do yeah. as characters that make sense for their motivations. That's that's totally right. Um, it's it's interesting because this this is sort of, what happened with Final Fantasy VII as well. Like you have hmm. Sakaguchi's original scenario, like his original yeah. scenario document. Which was pretty different. Which was really different from <laughs> yeah. what it ended up being. Yeah. But then they create all these characters and right. then the characters end up shaping it and changing it into something else. That's so cool. Yeah. I, I really respect that way of crafting a story. Yeah. Right. And that's that's basically the way that my novel has come together too. So I, cool. I wrote it originally as a project for English and like, sophomore year in high school yeah, yeah. and it was like a 130 page novella thing and it was based on one character and it was just this one character story and everything like that and then as i started to write more characters as i developed it the story is now almost completely a different story yeah because it, it didn't work you can't just like okay here's a character i'm just gonna like shoehorn them into this plot yeah like, unless <laughs> you just do the tropes you know and just yeah. like oh i need a i need a gandalf character right. I need a, and then you can do it that way but that's not as interesting right, right? If you're if you're trying to write them as a human character who you personally know because you've observed this, right? That's mm -hmm. that's one thing that's important about being a writer is being a very observant person, being yeah, um, yeah. aware, having a great social awareness, right? If you're writing about something you've seen, something you know, something you're socially aware of, it's it's a little different than just writing an archetype, which might be right. more along the lines of how they created characters for stories in like ancient times back in the day yeah. right so uh so if you're not writing to an archetype specifically but to a person or to maybe several people you're combining into one um it it requires a little bit of uh, uh massaging in terms of it's like true. the plot and, and I, that's a good thing i think i think so and, and the archetypes they're so ingrained psychologically that they will kind of just naturally manifest themselves through your story yeah you don't have to impose them on the story they're gonna come out you know, and, and it'll be more natural, I think. Right. Um, so you had brought up a little earlier about how the world, the, the style of the world really mm. changed for this one. Yeah. Um, each of the Final Fantasy games previous to this had been very, uh, well, not necessarily like strictly, you know, Western European med medieval fantasy fair, but yeah, more right. inspired by that than... Yes anything else really. More like 1000 AD 
maybe 1300 AD, a yeah. lot less. This one, where would you put this? Like 18? I'd say this is something like more equivalent to maybe like the second industrial revolution or something like that. Yes. I'm trying to think. So maybe like, like a Jules um, Verne novel, like post, kind of a thing. um, what is it? Like late 1800s. Yeah. That's something like, like that's that, sort of that. where I'm thinking. Yeah. Cause you got the steam engine, you've got the steam power, right? Yeah, you've got right. the, the wheels and the grinders and all that kind of stuff, but you don't quite have, well, some 20th century inventions, sure. right? So I'd say like 1890-ish, it kind of feels like around, around that point. Yeah. Something more like that. Yeah. And it was, it was the first time they were doing that, right? Um, where they kind of departed so much from yeah. that more traditional fantasy setting. Um, so we got a quote here, the absence of crystals in this game and the realization of a fully technological civilization. I don't think they're totally absent because the, the Magicite kind of is the crystals. It's, oh, sure. And Materia yeah, kind of were the crystals of seven. Yeah, right? yeah, it's yeah. not exactly, it's not the four yeah, elemental yeah, yeah. crystals. It's not that, but there still is a crystal It's like motif. pieces. It's like the shards of the crystals. Yeah, right. There's still somewhat of a crystal motif. Yeah. But I think when he says the absence of crystals, he's saying the absence of the four elementals. Right. From the previous games. Um, and the realization of a fully technological civilization seemed to bewilder some of the more serious fans of the series. That said, the mm -hmm. impact of the opening scene with Magitech armors traversing through snowy fields oh, so was cool. well regarded and fans were willing to accept the challenging yeah. culture of the game. So it was mostly well received at the time. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, I think Good that... choice. I think that a, a big part of what led to Final Fantasy's identity... Um, when it reached its heyday, its real peak, mm -hmm. was this blending of sort of the traditional fantasy archetypes and elements with sort of this technological setting. It's like the two yeah. things kind of like melded together. It yeah. wasn't sci-fi <laughs> right. or steampunk. Yeah, completely. not necessarily. No, no. Or cyberpunk or any other thing like that completely. Yeah. It's not fully that. It's just elements of this for the world existed with that traditional fantasy yeah, storyline of an empire and, and, and a rebellious, yeah. a rebellion fighting against them. Right. That that's, that's kind of what it ended up becoming. In many ways that does make it a lot more interesting, especially when you yeah. get games like Final Fantasy seven, right. Um, where it's just like, wow, that that's a world that I had not seen before. No, <laughs> it's like, this is, this is pretty cool. Yeah. You take those traditional, traditional fantasy elements and you put them in, in new, it's kind of like uh, what Brandon Sanderson does something similar when he writes. He uh, will take different genres and kind of try to mash them together and yep. try to make them work. Right. And the, the, the uh, it, it's interesting. Like a heist right. scenario as terms of archetypes or structure. Yeah, yeah. But then put that in a fantasy setting, which had sure. not been done before Mistborn. Right. Or like some friends of ours were trying really hard. I don't know that this has come out yet, but they were trying really hard to make an alien invasion movie set, or no, to make a romance story set during an alien invasion. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like um, Shaun of the Dead kind sure, of thing, you know, yeah. where it's just like, you would not think to do that. But yeah. that, that kind of a mixture can be really appealing to people. Um, it can definitely create some unique stuff nobody's ever seen before. Yeah, and this is actually a really good point because there's really, uh, it's almost so rare to find something truly innovative in terms of uh, a plot. At this yeah, point, yeah. It, it's, it's kind of like That's human true. beings have explored every kind of plot there is that, yeah. and there's really not that many when you really boil it down. No, um, there was a book written called the seven, the seven. Yeah, it is stories, seven. It's like seven, seven, basic stories. seven basic story structures. Yeah. 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 There's basically but seven. And, and if you, correct. if you want yeah. your readers or your players or your viewers, if you're making movie or show or whatever 
to feel like they're seeing something they haven't seen before. That's one really good way to do it in Sanderson's philosophy yeah, yeah. is, okay, Mash-ups. here's my story, which is a romance, right? Yeah. It's going to have all the same archetypes as Romeo yep. and Juliet or whatever. Typical, yeah, Beauty and the Beast, whatever. Yeah. yeah. But what's a setting in which we haven't seen that done before? Well, an, an alien invasion, invasion would be one. <laughs> right? So that's <laughs> one like way that, yeah. to take a story for an audience that might be saturated with similar archetypes and, yeah. and, and story structures and, and you have can seen kind of it a lot like, like rejuvenate it yeah. like you can infuse kind of some infuse, life into yeah, it yeah put some life into it again yeah. and that's exactly what this did i think and so, and yeah. it's so brilliant that the introductory sequence of the game like does such a good job of introducing that in a really cool way it's one of the best opening scenes in a final fantasy game and they were oh, on a yes. roll at this oh, point. Yeah. I mean, they, they were on a roll. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Final Fantasy four and five's openings are yeah, awesome. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Six is, is even better somehow. Yes. Seven's seven is amazing. <laughs> like they're so good at opening, yeah, yeah. opening scenes. And, yep. uh, and a lot of that is just visual storytelling. They just create a setting in a world and they don't have to say a lot to you. They right. don't have to. They, they just let it unfold and yeah. you're just drawn in. You can't help it. There's not a lot of expository dialogue going not on really, here. No. It's very quick. Yep. Uh, they they do the you know the little uh, titles on the top as they're sort of scanning around different environments in the game, talking mm-hmm. about the War of the Magi, and then oh, you yeah. see these really awesome Magitech armors, yeah. and you're like, holy crap, this is Final Fantasy. What you, you, it's a, it is because it, it, when you boil it down to structure, when you boil it down to game philosophy yeah. and how they design dungeons and and the battle mechanics and all these things, it's Final Fantasy. It's a Final Fantasy game for sure. Man. It has the same basic sort of structure, design, and philosophy behind it as five and four and the games that came before. But on the outside, when you're looking at that opening scene, you feel like this is something you've never seen before. Right. Even though it definitely is. It definitely is. You've played the first five Final Fantasies. You've seen every (laughs) idea that they have in this game, basically. Yeah. Uh, Aside maybe from Magisite, which was kind of the novel new gameplay mechanic. Sure, in but, terms of that. And also even with mechs, it's like Takahashi didn't create the idea of no. mechs, right? That had been around for a while. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. A lot of ton of mecha anime. But, yeah. but a who, fantasy who world yeah. with mecha, like that was yeah. really cool. That w- that seemed novel. And and that being like the hook that drove you in was really, really brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. Um, and, and that opening and scene is just iconic. It's worth bringing up too. That was uh, Xenogears director Tetsuya Takahashi. He, he created that intro animation yes. with the Magitech armor as they're kind of marching and you see the landscape um, kind of moving. It's a fake 3D, but it it's looks a, yeah, 3D. Yeah, mode looks 7 really good. rendering. Yeah. Yes, and they're able to kind of, so mode 7 was this... Um, this uh, processing, you know, ability for the Super Nintendo to give you like some type of 3D. like a faux 3D, yeah. And it's what they do for the overworld where the map kind of sits flat and you're kind of moving instead of up and down. There's sort of a Z axis, right? You're kind of able to go forward and and out. Um, And they were able to use that here and they have this town showing up on the horizon. We'll be putting, we'll be overlaying it as I'm talking. It's really cool. But that is, you'll notice that the mechs there are not the mech design from the game. Nope. They're slightly different. They're a little different. Yeah, there's some big differences. And Tetsuya Takahashi kind of took some liberties here. And when he presented it to Sakura, Kaguchi, the idea, I think from his perspective would have been, yeah, he's going to make me do his design, but I want him to see this first. Yeah. And Sakaguchi loved it yep. and said, that is actually better than the design that we came up with. Yep. Keep it. Don't change a thing. <laughs> that and Sakaguchi could realize he, he could, mm-hmm. he could see what we all saw when we first played the game. Right. That's special. 
Like that's a cool intro. Don't change a thing. The likelihood that he would have made it worse if if he started manipulating and changing things um, is too high. It was so good that any change would have probably just made it worse. Yeah. Um, But yeah, that was uh, Takashi. He, he took some liberties there, but he was a bold, he's a risk taker, right? Most people would have been like, I wouldn't dare cross Mm -hmm. Sakaguchi. I'm going to use his design. Oh yeah. It takes a, it takes a personality to really be like, yeah, the executive director dude, like, I'm going to not do what he, he showed me. I'm going to do my thing and, <laughs> yeah. and he's going to love it. Right. Yeah. That, you know, certain people can pull that off. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it's, it's worth bringing up. There are actually, as you're saying, three different Magitek armor designs. Yeah. There's te- uh, Amano's. That's right. That's right. I didn't think of Amano's here, yeah, yeah. which is of course not ever a basis for which they draw the actual sprite in the not game. Not really. I think the idea was, oh, when the pixel art, you can't tell. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then they designed the ones that you see like in battles yeah. when you're actually fighting, which was kind of their sprite designed for it. Right. And then the one that Tetsuya Takahashi designed specifically yeah. for that walking animation, that mode seven walking through the snow yeah. was similar, but different in, in ways that were important because he thought he wanted to really emphasize this, this big, heavy, powerful machine. Yeah, that's he right. gave him a much broader, almost like um, yeah. triangular masculine sort of there like, you go. Yeah, broad uh, shoulders. Yeah. broad shoulders to it yeah. that it does not have otherwise. Like right. the, the, the arms sit a little lower and, right, and the, right. the, you know, the person kind of sticks out sits of the top, top yeah. uh, kind of like this, like sits out of the top of it like that, yeah. but not in, in the Tetsuya Takahashi design. That's and right. it really works because they feel so like powerful and lumbering and heavy they as do. they're treading through that snow. And, and there's that foreboding, like yes. what's going to happen. And then you see the, the town on the horizon yeah. and you're like, oh man, they're yeah. just going to go wreck that town. Yeah. And, and that's exactly what happens. But there's so much mystery too, yeah. with, especially with Terra. Anyways, we're going to get into it when we actually get to that point, <laughs> yeah. uh, but very well done. And yeah. of course, Sakaguchi has a game th- um, theory that you talked to him personally about mm-hmm. uh, when you were able to uh, interview him about intros and yep. having a punchy intro. Yeah. Um, and this game definitely achieved that. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. Let's see here. I've got... I do have one other thing. So I talked okay. about the late 1800s feel. Yeah. One of the reasons I would put it specifically in 1880, 1890 in that region... Um, is because, well, at least this was true for all of the 1800s, but the big medium at the time, the big artistic medium for conveying, like, stories and and for drama Mm -hmm. was opera. Yes. Especially around that time. It was a good uh, segue, yeah. Specifically, um, the greatest opera writer of the time was uh, Wagner, right? Mm -hmm. Richard Wagner. And he, anyways, this game will implement the use of opera to great effect. Yes. Um, some very, very like moving scenes mm-hmm. are, are used, are, 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 are kind of conveyed to us using this old medium of opera. Have you ever been to an opera before? I have. It nice. was years and years and years ago when my family lived in Denver, I went to one and I don't remember a thing about it. I was bored out of my mind <laughs> because I was probably seven years old. <laughs> seven. That yeah. might be too young for an opera. Probably. Yes. I have, I have <laughs> never, I have never been to a, an actual opera before. Yeah. I would absolutely love to go. Oh, I would too. I, up until probably 10 years ago, I would have thought it was the most boring yeah, thing exactly. in the world too. It's like, give me my freaking movies, you know? Yeah. Uh, but the more I learn about it, you know, the more, especially it's, it's even special, with Final yeah. Fantasy VI, it's like, I just play the game and you're going to want to go see an opera now because yep. the, the way it's conveyed in the game is just so beautiful. Uh, but I also wanted to bring that up too, that they really took some contemporary elements of the real world 
um, specifically from that time period. Yeah. Right. And not just, I think a lot of, uh, of, um, storytellers might be able to overlook something like that. Like, Oh, you know, this is the, this was the big media for telling drama, dramatic stories at the time. Uh, but not this game. This game includes things like that, which just really make the world seem super alive. I love it. Yeah. And, and this, if you hadn't read this, this blew my mind. It might might also blow yours. Uh, Kitase was writing that scenario. We're talking about the opera scenario. Check this out. (laughs) <laughs> I had never been to an opera before I worked on that scene. Really? I had to create it from my imagination, guessing what the opera might be like. Sakaguchi told me to go to the opera before I made that scene, but I didn't go. <laughs> oh my gosh, really? <laughs> Once again, these bold people in the face of the executive, they're just like, yeah, I'm going to do it my way. I wish I'd gone to get a better sense of the atmosphere before sitting down to create it. I based the look of the auditorium on London's Albert Hall. During the promotion of Final Fantasy XIII, so years later, I had the chance to visit Albert Hall for the first time. I remember looking around and thinking, man, I should have come here before making that scene. (laughs) Now, obviously, he's going to be more, I guess, I don't know. Self-critical. Self-critical. But it's amazing to me that the opera scene feels as authentic as it does yeah. from someone who has never actually been to an opera before. Right. That, that's pretty spectacular <laughs> at, at being that's able to guess cool. based on, I don't know, watching scenes of Just in movies or shows, whatever. movies. Yeah. But they pulled it off. It's, 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 yeah. that's another one. So we're, we've been talking about the intro scene being like one of the most iconic scenes from the game, yeah. but this is probably, probably even more so if mm-hmm. not a very like one a one b kind of situation oh sure yeah. the opera scene is is a very very famous scene from the game and <laughs> kataze had never been to an opera he was told he to go and then he didn't even go and he regretted that years and years later so um once again yeah. though the likelihood that going would have made the scene worse is actually really high sure right maybe whatever he had in his mind of what an opera is um, being as good as it was, it's like, yeah, you know, maybe it's better that yeah. he didn't end up seeing an opera. Yeah. There's a interview here where they are all talking about what they used to sleep at the office with. So like Sakaguchi says that he had a big chair in his room that would sort of fold down into a bed and oh, he would right. sleep on that. Yeah. And then, uh, a Kitase, lot of employees would sleep at their office. Yeah. Katase would say, I, I brought a sleeping bag into the, into yeah. my office. And another guy said, I brought a futon and people were like futon, like what? So let me see if I can find that quote real quick. Cause it's really freaking crazy. But like a ton of employees began sleeping at the office, uh, to try and finish this game. And this was all yeah. because they decided to add world of ruin at the end of it. So, <sighs> you know, it's, it's, this is, this is kind of the reality that I, came to while really researching this series was, and and you've done this too with your just research into say like Konami and and Uh, Capcom and some other companies. I actually have. You have a whole video on that, right? I do. The the workload that they put on these developers at the time was horrible. I don't think that much has changed, Uh, honestly. Yeah. They would say it's gotten better. I would say a little bit. Yeah, probably not that much. Right. Now, instead of 80 hours a week, they're working 70 hours a week. Like, okay. Yeah, it's still insane. But um, in in order for us to, you know, enjoy these games that we did growing up, there's a bit of, there's there's a part of me that feels conflicted about this now, like having read all this stuff. It's like these dudes really put their health on the line. Oh, yeah. They they were hospitalized. They were um, just... um, jaded after a project ended like yeah. uh 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 what's his name 
Kato, Masato Kato, oh, okay. who was like um, one of the lead scenario writers on Chrono Trigger, oh, no. has a very kind of jaded view about Chrono Trigger. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, it's why he took Chrono Cross and things like that in a very oh, different a direction different later on. And, and so, like, we'll yeah. get to that eventually. We'll talk about Chrono Trigger and, and the development behind that. But I will, I, I can't it's, wait to it's hard to read, like, the experience of these guys it sometimes. Is. And you know, so the video I did was called Japan's Secret. Um, yeah. You guys should check it out. It goes over a lot of this stuff. Um, I did come, out, come across some new quotes today where employees would be sleeping at the office and then an executive would walk by and wake them up because they weren't working. They weren't being productive. And they thought, whenever I am working hard, the executives never come by and see that. Whenever I sleep, they come by. And yeah. then it seems like I'm being lazy. And so yeah. they have this internal like drive to just like, I've, I've got to, you know, I've got to do better. You know, I need to help everyone out. We're all here as a team, right? This is the very, the, the team focus of a lot of uh, Japanese people and Japanese companies, you know, and if I fail, then, then everyone fails, you know? Yeah. And so we can't let each other down. Yeah. Uh, but companies can take advantage of that yeah. work ethic and uh, really exploit their workers to, uh, very, very bad consequences. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and suicide is, is rampant in Japan. And there's, um, there's a whole cultural sort of influence on that in, yeah. in specifically Japan that makes it a little different even than, you know, the crunch that people experience here, not to, not right. to diminish it at all or take anything away from it because it's bad here yeah. too. But there's, there's like an added element to it in Japan where yep. people feel almost this sense of like duty that they, they have to as in a collectivist effort, yeah. you know, like they must contribute uh, to the fullest extent. It would be very shameful to be pointed out as the reason why the project was lagging. Yeah. It would be very, even very though, shameful. even though that's, that's like insane to say, because it's like, yeah. no, you're not <laughs> like, right. like you're not the guy that's bringing, it's just that it, it takes a long time to make games. Right. It's a lot of work from a yes. lot of people oh, yeah. like, and you just need more time to do it. than these executives are allowing you to have, it's there. It's not you. It's them. It's them yeah. trying to pressure you and make you think that you're the one bringing, you know, bringing everyone down. It's not yeah. the case. Anyways, hmm. here, here's a couple quotes. Uh, we've got Nakamura here. I was a new employee, so I was extremely busy. It was so hectic that I remember barely any of the details. For example, it was necessary for me to see the actual game in order to see that or what weapon a character was attacking with when making sound effects. So he did like the sound effects. Oh, okay. So I'd make the sound effects as if, uh, as I was playing and debugging that kind of thing. It was common for us to sleep in the office. Yep. And then Sakaguchi says, I slept in a chair that folded out into a bed and he laughs. And Katase says, See, I, I brought a, a sleeping bag. They get a kick out of this. Yeah. Like it's some, many Japanese people will say, no, those were the days, man. Yeah. Oh, I, when I just slept at work, like they, 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 it fills them with a sense of meaning. Um, if you've ever seen the documentary, Jiro dreams of sushi. Yes. That guy was so proud that yep. he worked over a hundred hours a week yep. at his job. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it was a really, it was a point of pride and you can see that coming across in this, um, yeah. too. Um, so Kitase, I brought a sleeping bag in with me and then we have Akao. I had a down futon and everyone says a down futon. And he says, yeah, a small one that's spread out on the floor. So yeah, I mean, like, like you're saying, there's an mm -hmm. element to that. And there's kind of an, a, another side of the coin I want to bring into this too, yeah. which is, and this will be in the first episode of the retrospective. Um, when they were first starting out, when Squaresoft was first starting out, like 1983, right? Okay. Um, and they were all kind of part-time guys. And yeah. Sakaguchi has a quote that 
I thought was really fascinating. He was like, we, my first generation was the first to make video games. Mm. Um, and we had no seniors at our company. So there was this ah, sense of freedom okay. that was just wonderful, right? right? And he talks about how they would work. They'd come into work, stumble in there around like noon. Yeah. They'd work until the evening. Then they'd go out drinking together. Yep, yep, yep. And then they'd go play the arcades all night because the laws were different in those days and they could be open all night back then. Okay. And then they would right. just go straight from the arcade back into work again or maybe go home for two hours to sleep and then come back in and work. And so there yeah. was almost... Like Maybe a, a fraternity, yeah, fraternity sort of like feel yeah. to how Squaresoft started out where sleeping at the office was common, yep. but it was different when it was a bunch of people on an equal level in and they're all in a brotherhood yeah, yeah. and they're all just trying their best to make a hit game and then yeah. none of them know what they're doing yeah. versus when they started to actually have seniority and it's like, now we're all expected to come in and sleep here and to get this game thing. done. Yeah. Th th something changes there, but I wonder if there was some influence on the early feel uh, of the company sort of influencing sure. the culture by this time. I don't know for yeah. sure, but that's you know something I speculate could be a reason. I would say that for sure, if a company did not do that, they would not have become successful. There, there's a point so, to be made there. In Japan, in the video game, you know, if if you're competing with people who are working 15 hours a week um, and you're eight hours a week, or mm. sorry, 15 hours a day, that's what I meant, and you're eight hours a day, um, I it, it's just hard. And that's how it's, that's a lot of how it's seen in Japan is like, okay, well, you're not gonna, <laughs> you're not gonna make a successful game. Yeah. Um, but that is changing. And, you know, there's a lot, like a lot of American games are just as competitive as Japanese games. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, got another uh, quote here from Kitase saying that the final debug phase for Final Fantasy VI was an exhausting affair. Mm. In fact, I yeah. missed out on the early reception of the game as I took a month or so yes. off of holidays after production was concluded just to rest and recuperate. He took a month off. He had to take off. a month yeah, yeah, off yeah. just to like... Because <laughs> he worked for a get, year yeah, straight. Just, yeah. you know, nonstop. Yep. And then, of course, we were talking a little bit about Ted Woolsey here. And so he says, I was given 30 days to do it. 30 days to translate Final Fantasy VI. 30 days. 30 days to translate it three times. Yes. <laughs> Which is not a yeah. lot of time. I think there were about 1,300 pages of text. I mean, you, you, you've been, uh, as, a, as a hobby, kind of like a hardcore hobby, been learning languages. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how daunting is 1,300 pages to translate something in 30 days to in, you? Incredibly daunting. <laughs> yeah, incredibly daunting. 1,300 pages is just reading it in 30 days. Yeah. is like, okay, but of course, if it was my full-time job, I'd probably be able to do it a lot quicker. But yeah, sure. incredibly daunting. And for translation work, it's like, man, Woolsey better have known Japanese as well as English like as a native speaker, like yeah. perfectly in order to pull something like that off. Um, and to the extent that there are mistakes in the translation, I mean, give the guy a break, right? Yeah. Well, also, and we'll get into it actually here. Um, it wasn't contiguous. It was broken into pieces. People, yeah, that's even worse. <laughs> people who were scenario writers would just take a chunk of the scenario and dump it in. They <laughs> would put it in the code in, code out piece or, or, or headers there. And they didn't care where it was. They just stuck it in a file and balanced it so it all fit in different places. At any rate, I had to do my best to keep in mind all the different pieces of the game. Of course, I played the game through and had beaten it, so I kind of remember generally. The thing was huge, so it was hard 
to keep that all in your brain. And then, of mm. course, on top of this, the the character limit of the game means he had to do it three times. Yeah. And so by the yeah. time he gets to the third translation of this, he's not really even anywhere close to like transliterating like line by line. Yeah. He's taking the general idea of a text box and just like, this is more or less what it is in English. And <laughs> yes. how can I say that in the fewest words possible? And there are, there are lots of um, examples of that. For instance, there's um, a late instance, um, you know, with one character saying, oh, go get him in Japanese. He says, grab him. And in English, he says, kill him. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, there's a few other words there too, but, uh, yeah, he, he kind of takes some liberties as yeah. well because he's just trying to get the gist here. And uh, a lot of people who are way into Japanese will be very hard on him yeah. <laughs> for um, some of his decisions. Uh, but he was working in under some pretty ridiculous constraints. Yeah. And speaking about constraints, as difficult as they make things, right? Mm. We've also talked about this a lot in previous podcast series. They're also the great impetus of innovation, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's, true. Th that's kind of where you get your most creative when you have to work within. Constraints. Oh yes. Yep. Um, and, and Katase says this is a, a large reason why he, he actually misses it in a lot of ways. He misses those days of the text limitations and the, all the limitations of those yeah. older consoles. He says, it's maybe strange to say this, but I miss the limitations of making games in those days. The cartridge capacity was so much smaller, of course, and therefore the challenges were that much greater. But nowadays you can do almost anything in a game. It's a paradox, but this can be more creatively limiting than having hard technical limitations to work with it. Hmm. There is a certain freedom to be found in working within strict boundaries, yeah. one clearly evident in Final Fantasy VI. Yes. Yeah. So I, I, think I, that, that. I think that you, I think that's kind of the difference. Yeah. And, and I think what he's talking about is coming from it's coming from uh, experience with the horrific development cycle of Final Fantasy 13 and 15, <laughs> right? It's where, like, where the constraints are being lifted. lifted Video games like have crazy. less constraints now yeah. than ever. It was, And uh, yeah, I don't know that it's such a good thing. What he's saying is, in a way, it's way harder to make yeah. a game when you have no constraints. Like, yeah, we, yeah. like we had way less on right. Final Fantasy 13, 15, and they had development hell cycles that were just awful yeah. right it was almost like those were harder to make and, and they're harder for other reasons again we're aware of this yes, we brought this up earlier yeah. but he enjoyed working within those limitations because it it, it directed your creativity yeah. so much it's like you can only do it this way so how now you now you can't now you you get more focused it's like yeah. when you can do it one of a million ways it's like well which one do i pick when you can only do it one way it's like well how do i make that one way work and your, your mind gets really focused. And I think that's why these games yeah. were, they felt like such polished, focused, like um, uh, just just really visionary experiences uh, that, that weren't messy, mm. right? Because yeah, yeah, they definitely felt more th like that. That was a big part of it. It was yeah. because of the constraints that they were working with. And so yeah. sometimes it's good to create constraints for yourself, right. game developers and writers and yes, creatives out everybody. there. Uh, just say, no, I'm just not going to allow myself to do that yeah. thing that's available to me, right? It's hard to do. Um, artists have a proclivity to want to break barriers yes. and, and step outside of the boundaries. And that's what artists do. But at the same time, artists can't make art without the boundaries. Yeah. But then they have this natural proclivity to want to break the boundaries. And it's, it's, uh, it's just a constant 
Uh, that's almost like the artist's uh, dilemma, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, another thing I kind of wanted to touch on here, I don't necessarily have any quotes for this, but it is something that's pretty interesting about Final Fantasy VI. Uh, you, you talked about it, you touched on it a bit with the way the world is rendered, right? So previously to this, um, they'd have two different sprite sets for the characters. They'd have their overworld sprite, uh, which yes. is like this little tiny dude. Like super cheapy, <laughs> yeah. right? like really cheapy, almost just yeah. a head with like two yeah, legs. Yeah, basically yeah. just like a super, super squished yeah. little guy. Yeah. And then they had their battle sprites, which were chibi, but a little taller, a little more taller. detailed. Yeah, yeah. Um, in particular with Final Fantasy V, right? Like they had tons of sprites because you had to have each character, each of the four, actually five characters. And then... Uh, a costume for each class, which was like over oh, 20 yeah. classes. Uh, so they had to have, Oh, that's complicated. <laughs> they had to have every battle animation, every, you know, every animation that they do, but for every costume. <laughs> yeah. So the, you know, the battle sprites were really detailed in that way. But the, when you're walking around the world map, they were just these little dudes. Yeah. And, um, there was certainly a, a charm to that. I think that they carried that over. They wanted that idea to continue in Final Fantasy VII. A lot of people um, seem to think that Final Fantasy VII's map, map sprites were small and the battle sprites were big because it was some kind of PlayStation technical oh. limitation. That is not the case. It was they they, they did this on purpose because huh. that's how they wanted it to be. Okay. <laughs> they, you look at the character art, like the concept art, they draw a cloud little like this and they draw a cloud big like this. That's it wasn't right. like, oh, it we wanted grand. them to look like that, but then, oh, PlayStation wouldn't let us, so let's do this. Mm. They, it was the same idea that they had going all the way back to the older ones where okay, they had the smaller guy that walks around on the map and the yeah, bigger yeah. guy in battle. So gotcha. um, that was just kind of the way they did things. But with Final Fantasy VI, it was a little different. They used the same characters in battle and on the world map. So you have uh-huh. more detailed, taller, uh, higher pixel uh, count sprites walking around on the map. And I think that was because they used Mode 7 rendering That's right. all the time. That's right. Uh, the entire map, w- whether yeah. you're walking on foot, uh, any time is using a Mode 7, which kind of like gives it this round. Uh, I remember Landon back in the day would talk about how cool it was to see the curvature of the Earth when yes. playing Final Fantasy VII, right? <laughs> so you could see like... Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's it like cool. it, it, there was like a filter on it that sort of like, you know, warped the edges of yeah. the screen. But um, in any case, uh, that that was... This, this game uh, allowed them to be more expressive with the characters in the event scenes because they oh, right. had bigger faces and eyes mm-hmm. so they could actually do like a lot of different expressions. Now yeah. on Final Fantasy V, they kind of started doing that with, you know, a big exclamation mark and bug <laughs> yeah, yeah. eyes and, and, and they actually animated them a little bit. But in this one, they have so many more like hair waving and, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, like locks, like winking animation and a lot of different things that they were able to um, sort of heightened the drama quite a lot because they, they had these taller sprites. And so that lended quite a bit to what they could do in terms of visual storytelling. You know, you go back to, say, Final Fantasy IV, where the, the only way they can make Cecil look sad or depressed is just he lowers his head down and back up. Yes, but it was either the walking <laughs> in place, the walking animation, yep. <laughs> or just look down. Yeah. Yeah. And here they had tons and tons of room to really, like, do really cool animations mm-hmm. like that. So in this game, you're going to see a lot more um, of that in the event scenes. And this is something uh, Shibuya, the pixel artist, was was really excited to be able to do. And she talked a lot about in some of her interviews was that they could make the characters a lot more expressive. And that's, cool. that's part of why this is considered like one of the greatest games in terms of pixel, pixel art 
was because those characters they were more memorable visually like you could feel right. what they were feeling because they yeah. were expressing it more and so that was like a really big deal and uh one of the really really great things about it um let's see i got another quote here uh, i'm interested if, if whether we're skipping over any of the stuff that you had taken nope. down though no no you're hitting okay. everything so all right um so this one here is about uh, the music. So Nobu Oimatsu, I think anybody who's yeah. a fan of Final Fantasy knows how important his music is to sort of like the lasting impact of the games. Mm. Um, you know, we talk about uh, Yasunori Mitsuda as well for games like Xenogears, right? Where Tetsuya Takahashi has a quote. He says something like, um, I, I really felt like the game wasn't coming together the way I had it planned in my mind. I, I felt like, oh, I'm not, I'm not, the story is not landing the way I wanted to. Okay, right. And then Mitsuda's music went yeah. in and it was like, oh, okay, it works now. It's right. Now. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Music That's goes cool. so far to making a scene work. And, and anybody familiar with Uematsu's music knows that his music is, is doing a lot of heavy lifting. That's not to take anything away from the, the storytelling, the writing or the animation or anything like that. But it just is a testament to him. Like specifically, he's just so good yeah. that his his music just enhances everything it touches. <laughs> That's <laughs> like, probably true. It, it, to an insane degree. Yeah. Um, and he had already become pretty famous uh, in Japan uh, for Final Fantasy IV's mm. soundtrack. Uh, specifically, a theme of love, I think, was something that was, was uh, used... Um, in the curriculum of like Japanese school children for their music classes oh, and yeah. things like that. You know, it's mm. a, like that level of like notoriety in Japan, cool. which is pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, I think one of his tunes from Final Fantasy VIII went on to be used uh, in a synchronized swimming um, routine in the Olympics, in the, uh, in the Summer Olympics in 2004 or two or whatever mm. year it was that they had that. So, but uh, it, with Final Fantasy VI, again, he felt like he had kind of reached this mastery over the tools. Like he, he knew what sounds he could work with. Mm. And so he, he decided like this was the time that he could really experiment and not uh, spend so much time just learning what's available or how can I make this or that sound. You know, he kind of figured all that out by this point. It's in one of the millions of quotes that we've been going for a long time, so I'm not going to sit here and search for it forever. Uh, but... Final Fantasy VI is, I, I think, considered by a lot of people like his masterwork. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing, like the range that the musical score in this game has. Yeah. You go from like rock music and sort of like uh, jazzy kind of stuff to mm. opera. Opera yeah, that's like yeah. legit. It's like yeah. legitimately convincing opera music. That's not easy to write right. at all. Uh, especially from a self-taught musician who like was yeah. obsessed with Elton John. And that's why he decided to learn how to play the keyboard. Right, <laughs> self-taught, right? This dude is like yeah. writing convincing opera music. It's, and so um, it's kind of on another level. And that's, yeah. that's saying something for Uematsu. Um, he and, knew it too. Yes. Um, in fact, it, I, in my research, I came across this, you know, fact, I guess, that he, he kind of wanted to retire from video games. Yeah. He didn't want to keep doing video game music. Yeah. Um, and with Final Fantasy VI, he wrote a score that he felt would kind of be his last one, basically. Yeah. And this, once again, goes to the idea of using all of your good ideas in, in, a one, sing thing. in one game, right? Yeah. He's written 
you know, hundreds. Uh, he's written tons of really good tracks since Final Fantasy VI. Yeah. Four video games. But at the time, he thought, I'm putting all of my best ideas right here. And then I'm going to have to step away because those are my best ideas. So like he did his best work and then he was going to retire and then maybe do something else. Um, and instead he has come up with, you know, over and over again, just incredible, yeah. incredible new music each time. So yeah. once again, the, just the concept of Final Fantasy, just putting your all into this game and then somehow still having another 100% to give to the next game yeah. um, is I just love that philosophy. It, you know, you don't think it would work, but it totally works. Um, yeah. He was just so happy with his work on Final Fantasy VI, though, that, um, you know, he could be self-critical. A lot of artists are very self-critical. Um, but in this instance, I, I feel like he knew that he had done some some pretty amazing work. Yeah, for sure. Um, anything else that you have I have one last. So the general look of Final Fantasy VI is, it's a bit darker. It's a little more desaturated. Yep. It's It's not like Final Fantasy V and IV and um, other games, you know, um, that Square Enix had made around this time, that Square Soft had go. made around this time. <laughs> <laughs> um, this game definitely has more muted colors. Um, it definitely, it feels a little grungier. It feels a little dirtier. Um, it has a more melancholic atmosphere. The music um, mm-hmm. shows that as well. Uh, this game is definitely less cheerful yeah. um, than other Final Fantasy games. And in some ways, this game marks a bit of a maturing of the franchise, right? That it's growing up Mm -hmm. and it is now ready um, to take on some, some different themes. You know, it did some of that in Final Fantasy four, but this game I feel like does it to a whole new level. So um, I really like that about the game that everything, all of the art kind of comes together to give you this, this general feeling, right? This mood that's consistent Mm -hmm. and, that maybe you don't know why it's happening as you're playing the game, that why things feel, even when they're happy, there's still this 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 aura of gloom that is overshadowing everything. Um, but it all it all wraps up nicely, and it all makes sense, you know, by the end of the game. Yeah, for so, sure. It's beautiful. Okay, for this next part we're going to talk about, uh, this is the first time we're going to put a spoiler warning, I think, into our first episode, uh, because it's something that is really important to talk about for dev history, but it is a massive spoiler for the game. So this next segment is going to be a a spoiler segment. So there's your warning. I might end up just putting this at the end of the podcast. That'll work too. One of the biggest surprises in this game was the fact that there's a, there's a whole almost game on the back of the world of balance, the the first mm. couple acts of the game. Yeah. You have the world of ruin where Kefka is successful in executing his plot to destroy the world or nearly destroy it at least. Yeah. And um, nobody saw that coming. And in fact, it was not planned. <laughs> I didn't they, know that. Really? They, uh, they <laughs> actually intended in the original scenario oh gosh, to I have know. the floating continent be the final dungeon. Wow. And for that fight against Kefka to be the party succeeds and that's the end of the game. That was the original plan. They were not going to have a world of ruin. You want to hear why they ended up doing that? I did not know that. So here's the quote from Sakaguchi. We originally planned for the party to save the world and defeat Kefka just as things were looking grim and the world was about to be destroyed. Then we started talking about reworking that. 
Oh, sorry, this was Kitase's quote. Sakaguchi cuts in at this point and says, the game was coming along more smoothly than we expected, so we were able to free up some time in our schedule before the release date to implement that. My gosh, so when most games can't make the deadline and end up cutting half the content just to meet the deadline, this game was so far ahead of the deadline that they added additional content so that that's 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 just wild. that's how they felt when they decided to do this uh-oh <laughs> it was not actually the case oh, <laughs> they actually oh, added geez. so much debugging work that uh. ended up creating just a horrible crunch um i have some more quotes that i'm going to read but i'm going to save them for like when they come up in context in the of the game's story okay. um just because I'm either trying to avoid spoilers or I just don't think it's important to bring up just yet. Um, So we'll do that then. This is going to kind of wrap up for this first episode. So we appreciate you uh, for watching. We hope you stick around and and play with us. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, um, for the the next episode, we're going to play up to the point where Tara is taken by the returners to their hideout and she is asked to join their ranks, but she's not being forced. They're allowing her to make a choice. They're giving her her space to make that choice. And she's trying to decide, you know, what should I do? Who am I? Kind of a thing. Um, right at that point, there's a safe point inside of the hideout that uh, you can save at, and that's where we're going to stop for next time. Um, so thank you for watching. Uh, we, we hope that you uh, enjoy this deep dive into Final Fantasy VI as much as we're going to enjoy yeah. doing it. <laughs> yep. And we'll see you next week. Peace out.